from Covenant Life Fellowship. For more information about our church and to stay up to date on all sermons, events, and news, please visit our website at www.clfroseburg.com. Today we're starting a new sermon series called Prophets in Exile. And here's what our plan is, is that we're going to study the 12 books in the Bible that are called the Minor Prophets. And what our goal is, is that every Sunday we're going to cover one minor prophet. Right? Uh, that doesn't seem like a big deal if you're reading the Bible. Um, unless you realize that like today, today we're going to cover one of the two longest minor prophets. We're going to do one sermon on 14 chapters. Right. So you can notice we had a lot of announcements. So on Friday, Dave told me that we had 45 minutes of announcements. So I had five minutes to preach. (laughs) So here's what I want you to go ahead and do. Just set your expectations that we are going to go over time. Everybody okay with that? Okay. Uh, good. Great. We're going to go over time. Uh, and don't panic, right? Because we are going to go over time, right? I know everybody just got nervous. McDonald's will still be there, right? So los dos, by the way. They can get you in really fast, get you out really fast. So if you need that, you can. That was a little plug. Okay. All right. So now we are studying these books and here's why we're doing this. Um, the middle of 2020, uh, was an odd time for me. And I remember vividly asking the Lord, it just seemed like something was just taking place in the culture. Um, there was a lot of odd things being tossed around. Um, so I began to read the prophets that were pre-exile, the prophets that were in exile and the prophets after exile. And here's what I mean by that. In the, in the Bible, you're going to notice that there's some minor prophets and they talk about certain things going on and they seem tragic and awful and hard. And then you see the people of Israel get taken to foreign lands and then they get into exile and they're living there for a long time and then they come back to their land and they begin to rebuild and then the New Testament starts. And I begin to ask myself this question, what is it like to live on the outside looking in. And here's why I was doing that, because in that time in 2020, it just felt like that the culture was changing in such a way that the Christian voice or Christian influence in the Western world was on the outside looking in, unlike any other time. At the time, I was only 50. uh, Now I'm 52, and that time seems to be expanded. Now, what we may not know, if you don't know your biblical history, you don't know much about human history, for Christians to have a seat at the table at all is an anomaly in human history. Right? We think in America that's normal, that's where we're supposed to be, because that's what we do, and we're Americans, we sit at the table, we talk about politics, we talk about education, we even have a wing of one party of our, of our national politics called the religious right. No other nation on earth has that. It's an anomaly, it's unusually odd. And beginning somewhat in 2016 and then landing more heavily in 2020, you begin to see the Christian voice being pushed to the outside and not just being pushed, but being violently shoved away and then the tables being turned and the doors being shut. And it's like Christians looking in from the outside. Now, that seems like the case. And some of you go, yeah, that's what it feels like. It feels like we've been living in a foreign land and maybe sometimes you're having conversations with people and you think you're speaking English, but they're speaking something else. It just, you just don't match in the same morals, ethics, character, 
the kind of things you're trying to accomplish that used to be the moral ethic of the day, those things seem to be gone. But the reason why this series began to stir me is I begin to ask the Lord a particular question. Why is it when I'm watching Christians, particularly in my neck of the woods, in the church that I'm concerned with, in the church that I lead, why is it that our people seem to be reacting in ways that I don't see in the Bible? And what began to dawn on me, and I talked talk about this with the elders, is Christians in our world have no idea what it means to live in exile. We don't even know how to act. Matter of fact, we demand our seat at the table. And when it doesn't happen, we then react as if God is not on our side. And we miss the whole point of what God is actually doing in that moment of exile to either return his people, have his people repent, or do something even astronomically larger like we're going to see this morning in the book of Hosea, which in the book of Hosea we're going to see that he brought a king and his name was Jesus. And the reason why this is important for us is because the way the culture is moving, this is going to be the norm. The norm is going to be that we are standing on the outside, looking in, and when we try to speak, there's going to be things said about us, done to us, and we're going to wonder, where is God in all of this? And we're going to see through this series, actually, God is right with you in the middle of this, because exile is where he wants you to be. That's what we're going to actually see in this series. And one of the things that began to stun me as I read through these books was how God was constantly speaking to his people about the way they're to live and act in these moments. And to be quite frank with you, um, it was not like the way that we were reacting. Um, the amount of DMs, everybody know what a DM, direct messages, that's for those who don't know what that means. The amount of DMs that I received from people that were, you know, friends on Facebook, right? Friends on Facebook that would tell me that all the prophetic words given in these books had to land on top of America was appalling. The amount of moments that people would use those prophetic words in those books to tell me why we needed to support one political candidate or another was, was shallow at worst. Really bad understanding of scripture, even at worst. I mean, it, it was appalling. And I, I begin to really ask the Lord, like, Lord, what do we do to instruct our people so they understand clearly that exile, even though exile is a point of what God is doing in his people to some degree, that some of this is by your design and we must react in a way that you've instructed your people to react in these particular books. Because these are the only spots we know of, and in reality, if you read most of the Bible, you're going to find most of the people of God living in exile. Matter of fact, you living in America, this is not your home. You're in exile all the time. Your home is a city that is not made with human hands. That's our home, right? So we've got to learn how to live in this world. And as leaders, we begin to ask these questions. What what does it mean to live like this? What does it mean to live in exile? How should we live while we're on the outside looking in? And what should we do in these moments? What has God commanded his people and how they should act in these environments? And that basically led us to... The minor prophets. Now listen, the glove and the minor prophets in our situation does not fit perfectly. 
I mean, let's, let's be honest here. I mean, what Israel went through in the Old Testament is not what we're going through, right? I mean, Israel was exiled forcibly, violently from their own homeland to a foreign land to live underneath a foreign dictator to leave all their home, their heritage, everything behind. And they were forcibly done to do that. We've just been exiled from the cool kids table. We're still sitting in the cafeteria. We're still getting served lunch. I mean, all of us can tell we've been served lunch, right? We're doing just fine. We're just sitting on the outside of that table, looking at all the popular kids having a conversation and whining about the fact that we're not sitting there. It doesn't, it doesn't fit perfectly. They were exiled from their homes. We're, we're exiled from a seat at the table. But also, God's covenant with Israel was a national covenant unlike nothing we have ever seen in the history of the world. As we're going to see, these people had been blessed by God in ways that no other nation on earth has ever been blessed. We can say America has been blessed more than any other nation. No, America is not the favored nation of all nations in the earth like Israel was. It's completely... Different picture. Therefore, we, we will see some similarities. But listen, we cannot throw all the prophetic words to Israel onto the New Testament church or to America. We've, we've got to be really careful there, right? <clears throat> Those of you who know your Bibles know exactly what I'm talking about. Those of you who have gone through, which all of us have gone through the last five to seven years, know exactly what I'm talking about. You can read on Facebook the amount of people that are throwing out prophetic things from the Bible that have to relate to America right now in this particular moment. And I read that and I go, that is actually not what God was talking about. Sorry. Check. Yet we think it's spiritual, it sounds awful, because it was quoted from the Bible. We must be remarkably careful. But even though Israel had enjoyed this favored status, there is a similarity I think we can see. Even though they enjoyed remarkable benefits from God, they sinned against God and they suffered enormous consequences for it. One thing you're going to notice in the series is, is Israel's exile was a direct, a direct consequence of Israel's sin and unfaithfulness to God. That may or may not be the case with why Christians are on the outside looking in. See, we immediately assume that it's because we're in sin that we're not sitting at the table, when in reality, it may be because this is God's blessing to get us off the table and begin to depend upon God in a completely different way rather than our political alliances. See? So it may not be the case that our, you know, our sin drove us to exile, but it certainly is the case with Israel. So there's some similarities and dissimilarities that we're going to look at. Now today, we're going to jump in by looking at the book of Hosea. Now, again, it's 14 chapters, and we're going to blitz this thing. Now, here's what we're going to do. This is not a 30,000-foot flyover, right? We're going to be standing on the moon looking down. That's what we're doing. So there's going to be passages. Some of you are going to go, man, why didn't you cover this verse? Or why didn't you cover that? I... It's because I can't. I don't have the time to cover that verse. So I'm going to give you an overarching view of this book to help it land in our souls, to give us an understanding of God's intent of giving the book, and then as well make some, some, if you will, some, some cultural exegesis to us 
living today, right? That's what our hope is, okay? So here's what I hope we're going to see in our study of Hosea this morning. This is the big idea. Uh, if you're new with us on the outline, there's always a big idea. And here's the big idea. God is faithful to his people even when they are not faithful to him. He will restore his people when they turn to him because he is compassionate and his love is unfailing. That's what we're going to see in the book of Hosea. So stand with me. We're going to read Hosea 1, Hosea chapter 1, and this is the reading of God's word. We believe it is inspired and God-breathed. The word of the Lord that came to Hosea the son of Barry in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam the son of Joash, king of Israel. When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go, take to yourself a wife of whoredom, and have children of whoredom. For the land commits great whoredom by the forsaking of the Lord. So he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Deblaim, and she conceived and bore him a son. And the Lord said to him, Call his name Jezreel, for in just a little while I will punish the house of Jehu for the blood of Jezreel, and I will put to an end to the king, I will put to an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. And on that day I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. She conceived again and bore a daughter. And the Lord said to him, Call her name no mercy, for I will no more have mercy on the house of Israel to forgive them at all. But I will have mercy on the house of Judah, and I will save them by the Lord their God. I will not save them by bow or by sword or by war or by horses or by horsemen. When she weaned no mercy, she conceived and bore a son. And the Lord called his name, said to call his name, Not my people. For you're not my people. And I'm not your God. Yet the number of the children of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered or cannot be measured or numbered. And in the place where it is said to them, you are not my people, it shall be said to them, children of the living God. And the children of Judah and the children of Israel shall be gathered together, and they shall appoint for themselves one head. And they shall go up from the land, for great shall be the day of Jezreel. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the times that we live in because they are remarkably challenging, but they cause us to lean into you in a way like never before. We need wisdom from the living God on how to instruct our hearts and how to instruct our families and to lead people and to care for people in this age that seems so foreign to us. So would you give us wisdom today? Help us to see in the book of Hosea the unfaithfulness of Israel revealing to us the faithfulness of God to do exactly what God has promised to do before the foundation of time. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Now, again, here's the big idea that I hope we'll get to this morning. I think you'll see this as we go. God is faithful to his people even when they are not faithful to him. He will restore his people when they turn to him because he is compassionate and his love is unfailing. So we're going to look at three characters in this book. We're going to look at Hosea, we're going to look at Israel, and we're going to look at God. So let's look first at Hosea's life. And you're going to notice as you read the book of Hosea that he was a prophet or a spokesman 
from God to the people living in Israel. Now at the time of Hosea's ministry, the children of Israel were divided into two kingdoms. You had the southern kingdom, Judah, which followed the line, the kingly line of David, who generally had a more faithful kingdom and better kings. You had the northern kingdom, Israel, which was a hodgepodge of poor leaders at best, and generally a more decadent kingdom. Hosea was a prophet to the northern kingdom around 753 to 725 B.C., which ironically is three years before the Lord brings Assyria upon Israel to take everybody out and remove them from their land. So the Lord is being very kind to Hosea by taking him home before this particular thing happens. But what you'll notice about the book of Hosea is that Hosea's life was a living metaphor. His life was there to point to something else greater that was going on in the world. And you see this in verse 2 when the Lord told him to take a wife who was given to whoredom and he's to have children by her. And notice why. Because the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. So what God told Hosea to do is marry a woman who had prostitute tendencies in her heart And then go be faithful to this woman to the bitter end. And he's to do this because unfaithful Israel has forsaken her faithful God. Now his wife's name was Gomer. We don't know a whole lot about Gomer. As a matter of fact, there is a lot of debate on Homer or Gomer's life previous to her relationship with Hosea because if she were a prostitute before marrying Hosea, then God was actually calling Hosea to violate his law, which says to not marry a prostitute. So most theologians would say she wasn't a prostitute previous. More than likely, she had prostitute tendencies already alive in her heart. But God told Hosea to marry this woman knowing this was the case. What we do know about Hosea or Gomer is that after their marriage, she gives herself to unfaithfulness and to adultery. We see this clearly in chapter 3 when we, when God told Hosea to go find the woman who is now being loved by another man and go buy her back out of her prostitution. And Hosea does do this, and then he pleads with her to remain faithful to him as he is faithful to her. So what you have is Hosea, the faithful husband, married to a woman given to unfaithfulness. When she acted on her sin, he went out to go buy her back from her lovers and restore her to her spouse. Now, I don't think any of us can imagine the emotional distress this would cause upon a man like this. To think that God would call a man to marry a woman like this, then call him to go knock on the door of her lovers and pay the price to get her back and plead with her not to go back into her prostitution and then bring her home and treat her as a faithful bride. It's just, it's just, it's, it's, it's inconceivable that it would even happen. Yet Hosea, gives himself faithfully to his God to reveal something to his nation. Now just think about that when you're going through your own personal suffering and you think to yourself, I don't like it that God uses my suffering to build my character. Compare your that to Hosea. And you're kind of going, eh, you know, you know, right? 
Now, Michael Barrett, I think, hit this very well. Here's what he said. The Lord was using this whole miserable, tragic experience of personal sorrow and emotional distress to portray a vivid lesson to Israel. Hosea's constant love and loyalty to Gomer was a beautiful picture of the Lord's unfailing love and loyalty to Israel. Gomer's unfaithfulness to Hosea was a tragically clear picture of Israel's treacherous unfaithfulness to the Lord. To miss the connection between Hosea's marriage to Gomer and the Lord's marriage to Israel is to miss the obvious. So when you read the book, you have to see this interaction, this metaphor taking place. But it doesn't just stop there. I mean, the two of them have children. They have three children exactly, and they're na- they named particularly for a reason to speak something of God's relationship with the people of Israel. The first one is Jezreel, which means that God scatters. It's a warning to say, listen, I'm about to scatter you from your land. The second one is named No Mercy, revealing that God's patience is wearing thin with them. The the third one is not my people, revealing, listen again, if these people were of the most favored status of all the people in the history of the world, imagine how this would land upon them. Now, I just want to ask you a question for a moment. I know that you might think that you're a little on the outs if you don't show a certain vaccination card or you walk into a room and you feel like people are staring at you. Imagine being Hosea and his family going into a local restaurant with your children named that. Oh, that, that, that's, that's the kids that their names are curses to us. Can we get our check, please? But I want you to notice something. The, these are real people. This is a real family. And his family was a living metaphor for God's relationship with Israel. Now, what's interesting about the book of Hosea, as you're going to notice this, is after chapter 3, there is not one more mention about Hosea's family. They're brought up, they're talked about, they give us a few examples of some things, and then we're, it's gone. And then God goes on through Hosea to begin to speak about God's dealings with Israel. But from these three chapters, you will notice something very fascinating about Hosea. While his life, his wife, was a living portrait of unfaithful Israel, Hosea's life was a living picture of the gospel of God's grace. Hosea loved Gomer in spite of what he knew about Gomer. And your God, listen, loves you in spite of what he knows about you. Hosea pursued Gomer while she was yet in sin. And can you not hear Paul in the book of Romans saying, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. See, Hosea paid the price to redeem his wife back at his own pain and emotional distress. And the payment price for our souls is the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Hosea is a wonderful picture of the faithfulness of God pursuing an unfaithful people. His life is remarkably compelling. His life is is a living gospel. It's a living gospel. Some would call this true lifestyle evangelism. There's some in our world that would say there's no such thing as lifestyle evangelism. They haven't studied Hosea. 
Everything from his obedience to God, to Mary Gomer, to his faithfulness to her, to raising his children, to buying back his prostitute wife, speaks of a man living out the gospel. And it really just drives home a question that we should be evaluating in these moments when we're on the outside looking in. And it's this, are you living the gospel right now? When others hurt you or treat you poorly or type something really mean about a comment you make in your thread of comments or they put a down sign or they give an angry face at you online, do you are you eager to forgive them as your God has forgiven you? Are you eager to serve others in a way that reveals the Savior who is the servant of all servants? regardless of their political affiliations or their attachments or their agreements or disagreements, when the world removes you from the popular club and casts suspicions and doubts on your beliefs and your opinions and even calls him dangerous, do you fight back with the same suspicions and the same opinions? When others discredit you, speak ill about you, or yell at you, do you use the same tactics? Or does the meekness of the risen Christ, the power of the King of Kings and the way that he's treated you and form the way that you act. See, Hosea's life is a living gospel. So let's look at Hosea or Isaiah's, is the Israel story. Right, sorry, where they, Isaiah, right. let's look at Israel's story, right? I mean, Israel is portrayed in the first three chapters as Gomer, the unfaithful wife. But to understand why this metaphor fits, we need to understand a bit about Israel. The nation of Israel, as I mentioned earlier, had the only favored status of all the nations on earth. According to Deuteronomy chapter 7, God chose them to be his people and had set his love upon them. Not because they were wise or wealthy, but because he's God and they were his and he had set his love upon them. It's like telling your children, I love you because I love you. And God had made an oath or a covenant with his people that basically said this, that he would keep his end of the bargain, but Israel must obey his commands. And if they did not obey his commands, consequences would follow. God loved and cared for his people so much that he's the one who delivered them out of Egypt after living in slavery for 400 years under the evil pharaohs. God had made a national covenant with the nation of Israel. He even promised to give them a special land called the promised land. But he gave them one condition when they entered the promised land. They were not ever to forget their God. We see this warning in Deuteronomy chapter 8 verses 11 through 14 when God warned them that when things got good in their land... And their stomachs were full, their houses were large, they should not forget the Lord their God. And he warned them in 17, verses 17 through 19 that if they did forget their God and failed to obey their God, they would surely perish from the land. Well, you want to know what you're studying in the book of Hosea? The people forgot their God. According to Hosea 2, Hosea 6, Hosea 8, they broke their covenant with God. The nation of Israel, now just process this, just for a moment, process it, who had the only national covenant made with God in the history of the world, 
who were delivered out of Egypt by the powerful, miraculous work of God after 400 years. That's longer than America's been a nation, by the way. Who prospered more than any other nation on earth, so much so that the kings and queens would travel from myriads of miles to come see the wealth in Israel. And that all happened because of the beautiful, powerful work of God on their behalf. Those people, those people forgot their God. It's what led them to becoming Gomer. Now, Hosea in the book addresses these issues with the people of Israel in three poems. The book of Hosea is actually poetry. It's prophetic poetry. It's written beautifully. There's a lot of language that is, you know, things that we wouldn't understand, but it's got a lot of the stuff that you just go, wow, this is so beautifully written. And in each of these poems, Hosea confronts Israel with the fruits of their forgetfulness. He says to them that they were deceitful people where no truth is found. You can see this in chapter 7, chapter 11, chapter 12. They were untrustworthy people. They lied. They deceived themselves. They were so much in denial that they could not see their own sin. Their own pride stood in front of them and testified to their faces according to Hosea chapter 7. Yet they failed to change. Meaning they were seeing exactly what the problem was and they failed to change. They lacked a sincere love for God. They'd forgotten God. They turned to idols, specifically the idol of Baal. Yet, according to chapter 6, they thought they could just bring sacrifices to God as if it meant something to God. In other words, they're living for idols that they could see, not trusting in the God who is true, and then bringing sacrifices to the God who they who is who is the one true God, thinking God's going to receive it the whole time they're giving their lives to idolatry. They were going through the emotions of religious ritual with no true sincere love for God. And this was because, according to Hosea chapter 4, that they had no intimate knowledge of God. What's intriguing is, Hosea actually says, my people perish because of lack of knowledge. You can almost feel the voice of God in grief writing these words. My people perish because they do not know me. And knowing does not mean knowing about God in theological terms or in big terms. Knowing is like the intimacy of knowing a husband and a wife. That's why the marriage metaphor is so important in the book of Hosea. This is why their love for God had grown cold and why they were proud. They did not truly know their God. Israel sinned against God, transgressed his covenant with him because they had forgotten their God. And and there's a myriad of sins listed in the book. But here's a couple more. It's what led them to be proud in their possessions. Chapter 4 tells us this very clearly. The more they had, the more they got. Just, just let that settle in to your heart for a moment. That the more they had, the more they forgot. You know that burden to get your 401k filled? The more you have, the easier it is to forget. Israel's forgetfulness to their God, their God is also what caused them to become pragmatic in their political alliances. Intriguingly enough, knocking on the door of, of Israel right now is the nation of Assyria. The largest nation on earth. And according to chapter 5 and chapter 7, Israel decided, you know what a good idea is? Let's go compromise and make some 
some peace treaties with Assyria. Let's go back to Egypt where we came out of deliverance of slavery and let's go make peace with those people. Let's have them come help us if something bad begins to happen. Well, what's intriguing is in 722, Assyria basically says, hey, here's your peace treaty, and they throw it under their ground, and they trample on it, and they run right over the top of the people of Israel. Now, just for a moment, let that be a lesson to us when we think to ourselves, to help the culture, we compromise with the culture, and we do the things the culture's asking us to do to compromise, because what they will do is in a few years, they will use that compromise to trample you. That's just what the enemies of God do. And the people of Israel trusted in their political alliances more than they trusted in God because they did not know their God. Let that be a lesson to us come midterm elections, come 2024 elections, when we think let's trust in who's in the office, who's in the White House, who's in the halls of Congress, rather than who is in the throne of heaven. Let that be a lesson to us. See, throughout Hosea's book, you, it's fine, you can clap, that's fine. I may, I may just keep going because time restrains me, okay? Alright? Throughout Hosea's book, you will hear a major refrain. When God blessed his people as he promised, they forgot their God. They trusted in their wealth and their political alliances and they put on a religious show. Now friends, I just want to be honest with you, as your pastor and your friend, Looking back on the last six years of what our Christian culture has done and said has been on the verge of embarrassing. Because we have literally trusted in our political alliances because some of our wealth is being taken. Because our idol is our wealth. Our idol is what we have. We believe we have the right to sit at the cool kids table When it's taken from us, and so is our wealth, we begin to panic. And what ends up happening is we then put up a religious show about it. So we will quote scriptures online that look really, really spiritual but have nothing to do with the context and have nothing to do with what God is actually doing and misses the whole big point of what God has been doing before the foundation of time to the end of time where he is building a kingdom with a city that is not made with human hands and he is gathering a people from every nation, tribe, and tongue and he is sending a king and his name is Jesus and he's sitting on the throne right now. And he's been doing that before time ever started. And so when we decide... Or like the people of Israel, they decide to forget their God out of all the things God blessed them with, trust in their wealth, trust in their political alliances, and put on a religious show, God will not be mocked. He will always confront his people with their sin and will always bring needed discipline as he determines. The issue in Israel, an issue in our lives, is not wealth per se. Wealth is not the bad thing. Matter of fact, people would say, well, we just become poor, then we're going to be more righteous. Well, read the Proverbs for a little bit. The Proverbs will show you poverty is as much of a problem as wealth is. The problem is the sinfulness of the human heart, trusting in riches to make us at peace. That's the problem. God will not be mocked. He will always come after his people and will always confront his people with their sin and discipline us if needed. Now, before we move to the last point, I just want you to take a moment to ask yourself some questions from Israel's story. Where do you see unfaithful Gomer alive in your heart? 
And if Gomer is a metaphor for unfaithful Israel, where do you see unfaithful Israel alive in your heart? Is it trusting in your wealth? Is it trusting in the fact that you have a voice to speak and give influence, and once that's taken, you panic? Is it your political alliances or your political connections or, or your way that you can do certain things or who is landing in the particular places? Is that what we are trusting in? Where, where do you see unfaithful Israel alive in your heart? Further, where have you trusted in the blessings of God more than trusting in the person of God? Where have the material blessings that God has blessed you with created in you a selfish materialism and breeding in you a self-confidence? See, this is the concern I have for us. It's a concern I have for my family. concern I have for me personally as a man when I look at my wife and my family that God is blessing us immeasurably. We're so grateful for what's God doing. But I want my heart to continue to bow before the King of Heaven. I watch it in our church 19 years. And to see what God is doing in the life of the church, I've always said, let's build a church and we step back and say, look what the Lord has done. I step back and say, look what the Lord has done. And I never want that to lead me to say, oh, let's be at peace. Let's let's take on self-confidence and use this stuff for ourselves. You can see that in our nation, can't you? Have we forgotten God amid success? which actually comes from God. The other question in Israel's history that I want you to probe for a moment in your own soul is, are there moments of religious ritual that lack sincere love for God in our lives? Michael Barrett wrote well on this when he said this, Hosea's congregation presents a clinical study of empty religion. They were full of religion but without any spiritual profit. Given the condition of their hearts, the religious ritual was the last thing God wanted. When religion takes shape without knowledge of God, it will invariably miss the mark of what is acceptable to God and profitable to the soul. Where are you just checking the box? Where are you just ritually just going through it? Just thinking that by my works, God will bless rather than understanding it's all by His grace anyway. See, Israel's story is a tragic one. An unfaithful people who had every reason to be faithful to God. That leads us to our last point, which is God's faithfulness. Which is really what the story of the book of Hosea is really about. So we can spend a ton of time analyzing Israel's sin, which we did. We can be convicted about our sin, which we are. But what do you do with the shame, misery, and guilt? See, that's the beauty of the book of Hosea. He doesn't leave us there. When you read the book of Hosea, you're going to see something of this God who keeps going after his people. See, Hosea is the story of an unrelenting God pursuing his people with unrelenting love. It's a story of the sin of God's people never catching God by surprise and God saying, oh, no big deal. I've already been working this out anyway. It's the story of the faithful, unchanging God staying true to his covenant promise and consequences for the sake of his glory and the good of his people. 
God always fulfills his oaths and his obligations and his promises and his people. All his people have to be do, to do to be right with God is to turn to their God and seek the living God because he's ready and able and eager to forgive. He's full of mercy, full of compassion. What's fascinating about this book, it has six sections of hope in it. You would think, right, a story so tragic would have this, ugh. But it doesn't. It's got moments of hope that just whet your appetite. Let me just, let me give you three of them. One of them will not come up on your screen. If you got your Bibles, look at the end of chapter one with me that we read earlier, where God in speaking after he talks about the names of the three children, notice chapter one, verse 10. This is not on the screen, so this is in your Bible. Yet the number of the children of Israel should be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And in the place where it's said to them, you're not my people, it shall be said, children of the living God. And the children of Judah and the children of Israel shall be gathered together and they shall appoint for themselves one head. And they shall go from the land, for great shall be the day of Jezreel. See, God is already, after he's already cursed them, said, guess what? We're gathering people. A message of hope. Look at chapter 2, verses 19 through 23. This will come up on the screen for you. And I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice and steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness. And you shall know the Lord. And in that day I will declare, declares the Lord, I will answer the heavens and they shall answer the earth. And the earth shall answer the grain and the wine and the oil, and they shall answer Jezreel, and I, and I will sow for myself in the land. And I will have mercy on no mercy. <clears throat> and I shall say to not my people, you are my people. And he shall say, you are my God. Remember those three names? Remember those three names? Notice the steadfast mercy of God. Notice those three names being reversed. Notice the steadfast love and mercy of God. Notice the promise of God to gather his people, show them mercy, and make them his people once again. Notice chapter 3, verses 4 and 5. For the children of Israel shall dwell many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or pillar, without ephod or household gods. But afterward, the children of Israel shall return. And seek the Lord their God and David their king, and they shall come in fear to the Lord and to his goodness in the latter days. See, what you see is throughout this book, there are moments of hope just like this. God will restore his people, and he will not let them stay in their shame and misery forever. Now, you could wonder when he gives these messages of hope, you can see why Hosea would say, Now, Israel, here's your response. In chapters 10 and 14, he says to them, this is what we must do. It's time to seek the Lord. It's time to return to our God. It's time to remember our God. Hosea's thought is, when you see the grace and mercy of God compared to our sin, it's time to return to this God. Let's give our hearts to him. Break up the fallow ground. Let's go be his people once again. But sadly... If you know Israel's history, you know that they didn't turn or repent. They didn't turn back to the Lord. As we're going to see in this series, their sin and their pride led them to captivity in Assyria in 722, eventually to Babylon, and then eventually to Persia. Now what's crazy is when we read our Bibles, we have a tendency to take Israel, we put them on this pedestal, and we think, these were faithful people who served the living God, look at these people, and the answer to that is, read your Bible. That's not what you see. 
You see a remnant of people that happen to spiritually cling to the covenant that God had made with them. But you see a large group of people acting like a bunch of non-believers living inside the church. That's actually what you see. And we know that their disobedience to their national covenant with God led them to this exile. They forgot their God. And what did God do? He fulfilled his promise and said, fine, you will perish from the land. Their temple was destroyed, their heritage trampled underground, and they were scattered throughout the entire known world. It would seem that God had left them and disregarded his promise. God would eventually bring them back to their land around 444 B.C., allowing them to start rebuilding their city and their lives. But listen, things would never be the same. And listen, friends, they're still not the same. Why? Why are things not the same? Did God forget his word or did God fail his people? Well, as Augustine would say, what is concealed in the Old Testament is revealed in the New Testament. And in the New Testament, we get a picture of why God allowed this moment to happen in Israel's history. Listen to Romans chapter 9, the Apostle Paul, when he said, But it is not as though the word of God failed. For not all who descended from Israel belong to Israel. Even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles, as indeed he says in Hosea, whoa, I better perk up because the New Testament is about to interpret the Old Testament. Those who are not my people, I will call my people. And her was no, who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where I said to them, you are not my people, they shall be called sons of the living God. See, from Paul's angle, from God's angle... The fulfillment of God's faithfulness to his people in Hosea is found in the gospel of Jesus Christ coming to every part of the known globe. In other words, Israel's tragedy brought about God's fulfillment to his promise. It would have seemed that Israel's sin led to divine separation. But friends, listen, Israel's sin led to divine fulfillment. God's promise and faithfulness will never be thwarted by human sin. Not even by Israel's sin. And I'm loud because I'm excited about this. You've got to understand this. I'm not yelling at you. I'm yelling with you because in your hearts you're yelling with me, right? I mean, I can feel it, right? Dude. Do you see how Paul interpreted this? Paul said, let me show you the fulfillment of Hosea's prophecy. It's found in the gospel coming. What about Peter? Peter wrote these words. And you remember the promise that God said he would gather his people, show them mercy, and they would be his. Notice what Peter said in a famous verse that we all quote all the time. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you've received mercy. Do you think Peter had read Hosea? See, there's something about the faithfulness of God that we cannot ignore. We cannot ignore. Our sin. A nation's sin, a favored status nation's sin, the president's sin, the world cultural sin all around us. Listen, cannot stop God from accomplishing his overarching purposes. It cannot stop him. 
God's faithfulness is bigger than our sin. He is not limited by our choices or by our votes. He is already sovereignly prepared and all things happen according to the kind intention of His will. That means, that means that sitting on the outside looking in as the world deliberates around their Thanksgiving tables is part of God's plan. People's evil acts, whether it's for control or not control, will not stop God from building His church, gathering His people, or fulfilling His promise. And aren't you glad about that? Aren't you glad? I'm so glad. You can clap. It's okay. Aren't you glad? Do you see how big your God is? It's, I mean, it's like He took Israel's sin and said, uh, hey, thanks. Already got a savior coming. See, that's the other thing we can't ignore here. You cannot ignore the grace, mercy, and love that God has for his people. Michael Barrett said it best when he wrote these words. There is hope for sinners because grace operates from the good pleasure of God's will, not because of personal merit or worth. Oh, praise God. Hosea loved Gomer in spite of what he knew about her. And friends, listen, God, God loves you in spite of what he knows about you. There is no reason for despair of grace because where sin abounds, grace abundantly abounds. Friends, I want you to let that settle on you for a moment. Your God loves you. And the evidence of your God's love for you is he sent the one head that both nations and all nations would bow to. He sent Jesus for you. It's why he sent his son. So listen, do do you feel spiritually cold right now in your soul? You feel like you're wandering? Hosea has a great answer for us. It is time to seek the Lord. Break up the fallow ground. Turn to your God who is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. Turn to him. And listen, if you're not a Christian and you're hearing all this stuff, I would just say to you, you're on the outside looking in of God's family, which is a way bigger deal than having a seat at the cool kids table. And the only way to be on the inside of God's family is to put your trust in Jesus Christ, the only one who lived for you and died in your place and rose again from the dead and is right now seated as the administrator of all that his kingdom is doing all over this known universe. So turn your hearts to Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the good word of Hosea. For it reveals to us your great faithfulness to your people. Before the foundation of the world, you made a plan. We, some would call it the covenant of redemption. That God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit were going to fulfill before time began. And the book of Hosea shows us very clearly, (laughs) you are doing it. 
And we thank you. Thank you that we are part of your plan, that you saw us, and you saw us even in Israel's sin. But Father, we also ask you to reveal to us where where Gomer is alive. Where we've trusted in our wealth or our possessions or our prosperity or our seat at the cool kids table or the fact that we've had more people in office that we liked than we disliked. And now we're in a setting where it just seems so different. Forgive us for trusting in those things rather than the living God. You promised that you would rescue your people without a sword, without war, without chariots or horses. And as a psalmist would say, some may trust in those things, but we, we want to trust in the name of the Lord our God. So, Father, we confess our sin to you. We confess our pride to you. And as we head to communion right now, Lord, it's a great time. Would you examine us? So, church, right now, as you, the Lord is examining you, just lay your sin before God, where you've trusted in certain things rather than the faithfulness and the steadfastness of your God. Acknowledge your need for him. Acknowledge where you have trusted in your own strength, your own wisdom, rather than the wisdom and the knowledge of God. And Father, we thank you that as we turn to communion, this is a moment where we remind ourselves of your faithfulness to us. We take the bread as a reminder that Jesus was crushed for us. He was beaten for us. We take the cup and we drink it because Jesus poured out his blood to be the eternal redemption price for unfaithful people like us. And as we take these elements in, we are reminded that we are yours and you are ours and your presence is residing within us. And so you use this time, Lord, to remind us again that you are the God who cares for us. You are the God who has sustained us. You are the God who have, has vast plans and all things are accomplishing according to your great plan and glory. You, you're doing stuff that we don't even understand. Help us as we take communion to be at rest in those things today. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This sermon has been proudly given in response to cherishing the gospel of Jesus Christ. Be sure to check out our YouTube channel and subscribe to watch all our sermons online. For more information about Covenant Life Fellowship, visit us on the web at www.clfroseburg.com.